Good morning, New Hope family. Happy Mother's Day. Glad that you're here. Um, I'm going to ask you to go to Judges chapter 4, if you would, if you have your Bible, or maybe an electronic version or a hard copy. And I'm going to just go over a detail with you as you're turning your Bible there. Over the last year, um, since COVID lockdown, I think it was, somebody correct me, it was middle of March, right? Middle of March, okay. So we did the, the 14 days, uh, or 14 weeks, um, and we had the, the sense that we needed to participate, and we did everything in the 14 weeks as a way of kind of shutting down the church, and we did virtual church, and then um, in leadership discussion in June of last year, we went back to in-person services, and I think we've navigated the COVID thing very well, and uh, not just patting ourselves on the back, but I think we found a way to kind of work with what's going on in our society. And as a church, we've done the best we can to navigate through it at the same time, giving all praise and glory to God and being able to be together as a church family. So well, thank you. I would agree. Um, so in recent discussions, conversations with the leadership team, we've been talking about, okay, so when do we move to mask optional service? And so we've been having that conversation over the last couple months. And as you know, on the, uh, as you know, on the elder team, there's uh, multiple physicians, individuals who make their living in the, in the medical world and a lot of doctors who attend here. And so in the midst of having conversations about where our state is at right now, we've been having that conversation of what does that look like for New Hope? And so what we landed on is that in the first week of June, the first Sunday services in June, you'll have the option to decide whether or not you want to wear masks in the services. Okay, so that'll be up to you. If you want to wear them, you, go ahead, Kurt. Yeah. Um, if you want to wear them, by all means, absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue to watch what's going on in the state and keep our fingers on the pulse of, um, you know, the COVID case, COVID decrease or increase and adjust accordingly. But um, as, as it appears right now, based on the conversation I've had with the physicians, they feel comfortable about that first weekend in June. So You'll hear more about that as it approaches, and that's the direction that we're headed. All right, so Judges chapter 4, and we're going to look at a remarkable woman this morning. Uh, before we get into this, I want to pray with you, and then we'll step into the passage. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank you for every individual who's part of the services, whether virtually or in person. And the, the circumstances that you've allowed to enter into our world None of us a year and a half ago seeing COVID coming, yet in the midst of it, you've still shown yourself faithful, you've shown, your, shown yourself powerful, and we thank you that you're continuing to work and you're eliminating, as we've prayed for, this virus. We don't know how much longer it's going to be around God, but we leave it in your hands. This morning, we focus our attention on this uh, mighty individual, this warrior woman that you raised up. And we pray to God that as we look at it and as we examine it, you'll show us specifically for each person. I know you'll speak to us collectively, God, but I pray that you would speak to us specifically, each person, showing us how you want us to respond. So I ask, Father, as we examine this story in Judges 4, that you would press on our hearts. Show us what you want us to do, because Jesus is worth that. We want to respond in the way that you're calling us. So God, we ask this in his majestic name and all God's people said, amen. 
Somewhere in the 1990s, Pixar developed a brilliant animated story called A Bug's Life. And with A Bug's Life, there's always the protagonist and the antagonist. And in the midst of the story, if you haven't seen A Bug's Life before, there's a, an ant colony that's being oppressed. There's a group of bullies that have come against them. And the lead bully, his name is Hopper. And Hopper decides that he wants to take the lunch from the school children. That's essentially what every bully does on the schoolyard courtyard. They, they decide they're going to take what somebody else has, and they're going to take it by force. So in that particular story, we saw someone willing to step up and say, I'm willing to face that bully. I'm willing to take on that responsibility. Well, in Judges chapter 4, you find two bullies, one by the name of Jabin and one by the name of Sisera. And they come to the forefront. If you haven't read the book of Judges before, you'll find that it is an action-filled book. It spans a period of time of 350 years. It covers the span of time from Joshua, Moses' understudy, all the way to the time of Samuel. So this period of time represents a, an era in Israel's history when there was no king, but rather there were individuals who served as judges over the nation. And during this period of time, this 350 years, God would raise them up at times especially of crisis. What you need to understand about this period of time is Israel is a collection of loosely connected tribes. The, the 12 tribes of Abraham's son, Jacob, descended from them, and they formed the tribes of the nation of Israel. But there isn't one central source of power. There's judges. It's before there's a king put in place. And during this period of time, they have this habit of obeying God and disobeying God, defying God and then repenting and coming back to God. Well, during this period of time when these judges are in power, the book of Judges is based on them, we find this known as the period of the judges. Some of the names would probably be familiar to you if you were raised in church. Ehud, a great judge. Samson, a great judge. We find these individuals coming to the forefront like Gideon, but one that's not noticed so much is Deborah, and Deborah was a powerful judge, and she's a very unlikely hero because we have a female judge leading a nation that's dominated by male control. How does that take place? Well, that's all interesting intrigue in itself, but more important about Deborah is that she follows God with all her heart. Now, unfortunately, during this same period of time, as I mentioned, you see a recurring theme, and you see it especially in Judges 4, verse 1. You see this on the screen. It says, the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in response, what God does is He allows Israel's enemies to oppress His people, that they might turn back to Him. And it's repeated over and over and over and over again. So in this particular story in Judges chapter 4, you have King Jabin and Caesarea, Caesarea, I'll get it right, S-I-E-S-E-R-A, something like that. Anyways, you got these two individuals and they're acting like bullies and they're oppressing the people and they oppress them for 20 years. Now, a characteristic throughout biblical history is that God raises up individuals because they're willing to say, I'll do it. I'll take on that responsibility. 
So in Judges chapter 4, it begins with this very familiar theme of Israel rebelling against God. Pick it up with me on the screen, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, 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 Sisera. I got it perfect in the first service, Sisera. Say it one more time and I'll get it down. Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagim. You guys try it. <laughs> the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So for 20 years, they have a stranglehold on the nation to the degree that commerce was ceasing in the nation. People were avoiding the open highways. They didn't travel on the most popular roads. The reason we call them highways today is because they started out in that period of time as being the high road where there was no flooding that took place. But we're told in Scripture, according to what happens in Judges 5, that people began taking roundabout ways. Look with me on the screen at Judges 5, verse 6. The highways were deserted, and travelers went by roundabout ways because commerce had ceased because the bullies are in control, and they're taking everybody's lunch, and nobody wants to be caught by them, so they're staying off the visible path. And the oppression is at the hands of the Canaanites led by King Jabin and Sisera, the twin bullies. Now, Jabin reigns from this metropolitan city. It's just nine miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's known as Hazar, and that's where his palace is at. And we find Sisera to the south, and his strength, this general, is in 900 iron chariots, and that is a massive force, especially for this early age. You might remember a couple of weeks ago when we were working through, should I believe the Bible as one of the hard questions that I mentioned in the period of time that individuals were challenging the Bible, especially in the 1800s. One of the things that people who were experts in the Bible kept doing was leaning into archeology. span Well, in the world of critics of the Bible, they were looking at that statement there in Judges chapter four, that there were 900 iron chariots in this region in Northern Israel. And they're saying, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. There's no proof, show us the proof that must be fabricated. Until someone discovered in the 1800s, the writing of King Tutmosis III, Pharaoh of Egypt, in which he wrote that he captured 924 iron chariots in that northern region. And all of a sudden, people said, okay, we'll give you that one. We'll let you have that. All right, that, that's just part of archaeology going after it. Now, I want you to think this through. If you've got 900 iron chariots, you have somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 heavy horses to pull those chariots. You imagine the thunder of the sound of 1,000 to 2,000 heavy horses running through the battlefield towards you. At this early age, this is an intimidating force. He's got a huge military advantage. To, to put it in our world, imagine if your enemy has a squadron of F-35s and all you have are bows and arrows. This is the military strength of what they're facing. And Deborah understands what Israel is up against. And she knows the God of the Bible. And she knows the God of the Bible is about to give Israel a major victory. 
So we pick it up again in verse 3. The sons of Israel are crying out because they've been in rebellion against God. They're repenting. It says the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came to her for judgment. Verse 6, now she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. You need to know that during the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, women played a really critical role in the work of God. Critics take shots at the Bible and say, the Bible really downplays women. It really criticizes women. It really makes them as less than. I want you to know that in the Old Testament, especially you see this today, that the judges, these women played a really important role. In, in the case of Deborah, She's perhaps one of the most outstanding. She stands in the tradition of like Miriam, Moses' sister. She's not only a prophetess, she's a very well-qualified judge. Now, admittedly, women were not rulers at this period of time. And so individuals who over the years have made commentary about the Bible look at that and say, well, it could be, it, it might be that men were not willing to step up and that's why she fills the role. Okay, well, maybe, but maybe she's super qualified. Maybe she's taking on this responsibility because she's perfect for the job. See, the reason I say that is Deborah has a great reputation, and you need to understand that in order to understand this story. She's judging for a reign of 50 miles in circumference. It'd be 100 miles from the northern end to the southern end. So I want you to picture it this way. She's just summoned Barak to come to her. Barak is a distance of Mount Pleasant to Lansing. Can you envision in your world that you would pick up everything, drop your life, and walk from Mount Pleasant to Lansing to hear someone who summoned you saying, I want you in my presence? That's the equivalent of what Barak has done in response to Deborah and calling him forward. Barak of Naphtali, we're told. And he's part of the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon. And they're the first tribes that are being summoned to this battle. Here's why I say she's highly regarded, because when he responds, he responds with respect and treats her with integrity and with dignity and clearly sees her as the superior, let alone the reality that she summoned him to confront the reigning military power in the entire region, King Jabin and General Sisera. That Deborah is even involved in this because she's a very powerful judge, indicates that everybody's feeling the effects of this oppression that's come against them. And so Deborah is going to encourage Barak. And she says specifically to him, God said, Barak, God said the victory is already ours. We just have to go out and seize it. And here's another detail. Mount Tabor rises about 1,300 feet above the desert plain. It's not a giant mountain by mountain standards. It's actually small. But if you're in a flat area, it's a pretty notable landmark. And this is where God calls them to stage the beginning of the battle at the base of Mount Tabor. And Barak's told you've got to lead the troops there. 
Go with me back to verse 7 again. Look at this. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops. So if Barak does his part, God's going to lure the enemy into a trap. This particular Hebrew word that's used here is mashak. Mashak is in your notes this morning. It's used not only of luring someone, but it's also used of blowing the ram's horn, of sounding a trumpet. In other words, calling them to battle. So Deborah's conveying God's chosen site for the battle. She says it's going to be in the valley of the river Kashan at the base of Mount Tabor. Uh, interesting component about this river. It originates up in the mountain country, beyond Mount Tabor in Gilboa, in the hill country. And it flows from the southeast to the northwest. And it makes its way past Mount Carmel all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea. This particular river really swells like rivers around here around springtime when there's lots of rain. But during the summertime, it just dwindles down to a little stream. But when it swells during the springtime, it swells its banks and it, it makes the valley very muddy and that flat region is very hard to move through. And we find this in verse 8. This is Barak's response to her. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me... I will not go. My family has told me that I have a habit of sighing when things don't go the way that I think they should go. That I hear a situation or I know of a situation and then there's a pause and I'm subconsciously, not even really aware of it, but subconsciously there's a long breath that comes out and I'll do this. And my wife will say, what's wrong? I'm thinking in this moment that Deborah's got a long sigh. I'm thinking in this moment there's a... <sighs> because there's great disappointment in what he's just said. There's spiritual letdown here. So I'm sure there's a long, exhausting exhale the lead soldier, the commander of the army who's supposed to take the fight to the bully and stand for God says, uh, you know, I got conditions. In other words, he's saying, I'm not trusting God. I need you to go with me. If you don't go with me, I won't go. And I want you to see just how highly Deborah is esteemed in the eyes of the people. He's saying, Deborah, I need you there to be successful. In order for me to be successful, you've got to be there. We both know that you're asking me to do something magnificent. You're asking me to lay my life on the line. But I need you fully in this too. Barak's saying, if you don't go to battle, I won't go to battle. If you go to Judges chapter 5, you'll see that Deborah actually names herself as the mother of Israel in these days because she's mothering over the people. So he's essentially said to the mother of Israel, Mommy, I need you to hold my hand. I need you to go with me into this. And here's where I read in between the lines this deep disappointment, and you hear it in her response. Verse 9, she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of women. 
Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Verse 10, Barak called Zebulun, that's a tribe, and Naphtali, that's a tribe. He called them together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Here's what I hear her saying. You've just revealed some things about your heart, Barak. You've also lost something, Barak. You've revealed things and you've lost something. Spiritually mature women, this has been my experience, spiritually mature women are willing to say and do hard things. And you see that happening here. For a fighting man in the ancient world, he's a highly skilled soldier. For that one to be told that his victory is going to belong to a woman, this is an ancient slapdown. This is a rebuke. Deborah is the leader of leaders in the entire nation, and she has to put him in his place spiritually. And he deserves it. Now, I get it. As I'm reading this story, I get it. The presence of her as a woman of God, she's in tune with God, she's a prophetess. To have her at your side, to Barak mentally what he's thinking, this assures me of contact with God. But what's it revealing about his heart? What it's revealing about Barak's heart is a lack of mature faith. He's not maturing. He's not believing in God's capacity. He's essentially saying, I don't have enough of a relationship with God, but you do. I don't have one, at least it gives me any confidence, but obviously God works through you. You're like my good luck charm. And so Deborah agrees. Deborah agrees to go with him. She's going to make the journey. And no doubt, her presence really helps troop recruitment. When Barak starts calling soldiers to fight, they begin the search in Barak's hometown, and people sign up. But he loses. He loses the ability to claim the victory because of his lacking relationship in maturing with God. Now, what I'm about to say, I say emphatically because I know it to be true. I grew up with a strong, godly woman. My life today is surrounded by strong, godly women, my wife included in that. Having a strong, godly woman in your life is fantastic, but allowing her relationship with God to be a substitute for your growing personal relationship with God is wrong. And Deborah can see that's exactly what's happening. And I'm not just speaking to men. Daughters, is your faith dependent upon your mom's faith? Having a strong, godly woman in your life is fantastic. But not letting that be the mechanism by which you have faith. You have to have your own personal growing relationship with God. And Deborah can see that's exactly what's happening with Barak, and it's wrong. So she has to say to him, Barak, God can't honor that. You're losing something here. And it's revealed something about her heart. So it's totally cool that he looks to her as a leader. But it's totally wrong and poor that his faith is dependent on her. Now, here comes verse 11. And you're going to say, what? Where did that come from? Look at verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Totally seems out of place, right? 
like, what? Where's the story? I want to get back to the story. It almost seems intrusive at this point, but here's what it's doing. It's acquainting us with this woman that Deborah has just referred to in verse 9. She just said to Barak, the battle's going to belong to a woman. Well, the woman she's alluding to is not herself. She's alluding to a second woman that's coming into the story, and her name is Jael, and Jael is part of a nomadic tribe, and the nomadic tribe is constantly on the move, and they're known as the Kenites, and the Kenites are ancient ancestors to Moses. They're related to his in-laws. Now, back to the story. We got the battle scene coming here in verse 12. Then they, I don't know who the they is, then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, and now he buys the bait. He's being lured. Verse 13, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. So at Deborah's direction, Barak and these 10,000 troops of Israel are setting up a defensive position in the northeast end of the valley. And to General Sisera, it looks like they're trapped because he's coming at them from the west. And they're stuck in this valley and they've got the mountains behind him. And he hears about this troop movement and it's in his own backyard. How easy is this? He can go against them. So he takes the bait and he calls out his entire chariot legion and he moves with a force of ground soldiers also against them, and they're advancing on them. Now, here's a little detail in the story geographically. King Jabin, he's up in the north country. He's in his palace in Hazor. The line of route for communication, it goes past the, past the base of Mount Tabor. In other words, for General Sisera to get any communication to King Hazor, He's got to go right through those 10,000 troops that are located there now. So what God has done by placing them at the base of Mount Tabor is he's cut off all lines of communication. If they need reinforcements, they can't get reinforcements. They're right there blocking them. But even with that, if we're going to be honest, from a human standpoint, Israel's quickly assembled army has zero chance of having any success against this fighting military strength of 900 iron chariots and these seasoned warriors. When you look at it from the standpoint of who's been experienced and who isn't experienced, Israel has had 20 years of resting. They've been oppressed, but they haven't been fighting in battles. And so they appear to have zero chance against these chariots. Fortunately, we know the God who specializes in zero-chance situations. And to this woman of God, who's completely dialed in to the things of God, her response to these overwhelming odds is this. This is the moment, Barak. This is what we've been waiting for. You've got to act on this. Step up and let God show himself powerful. Do it now. Verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Some of you have been at New Hope long enough to know that um, when I've cited 2 Chronicles 16.9, you know where I'm going with it. 2 Chronicles 16.9 is a verse I latched onto when I was a teenager. It goes like this. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, 
seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. This is where Deborah is at in this moment. You, you want to see how to encourage someone and how to challenge someone in your life? Watch Deborah's wisdom here. It's being put on display. She's challenging him, first of all. She's challenging him to recognize and compelling him to understand. This is the Lord's battle, Barak. It's not your battle. You play a role in it, but it's God's battle. You have been given the privilege to represent him in this situation. And even though it seems like all the odds are stacked against you, this is God's battle. Have you recently or are you presently in a situation where you feel like there's zero chance of success? Like all the odds are stacked against you? Maybe it's a job situation or a relationship or maybe it's a medical condition. Are you there right now? More often than not, when you're in that place, when you know that you know that you know that the situation you're in is not of your own making, it's not of your choosing, but rather one that God brought to you and he orchestrated all of the circumstances and you're not out of line with his will. In those moments, you can easily be left wondering if God really has your back. Are you really with me in this God? And in that moment, you need a wise individual in your life who's in tune with God, who's willing to speak into your life, and that's exactly what Deborah does. She simply reminds him, Barak, you're just his instrument. The battle belongs to God. He determines the outcome of this situation. So in Judges 4.9, she says, behold... The Lord has gone out before you, and this is where she encourages him. You just saw where she challenges him. Here's how she encourages him. That phrase that she just used, it's, it's borrowed from the military world. It's a Hebrew phrase that was associated when a king went with his army to battle. Has gone out before you. In other words, when a king went to battle with his military, he didn't stay in a strategy room. He was at the front of the troops. He was going before them, leading the way. She's used the name the Lord, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, Y-H-V-H. It's such a sacred name of God that the scribes wouldn't even pronounce it. They just put the initials, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-V-H, Yahovah. That Lord, the God of Sinai, Yahovah, Barak, he's gone out before you. This is the imagery for Barak in his mind to encourage him. The king of all kings has set his face like a stone. He's not distracted by other things. Barak, he sees the enemy. He's going after the enemy. He's going before you. It's his battle. He's in it with you, Barak. So this high-ranking judge of all the nation knows who really leads, that the Lord is the one taking the charge and bringing down the enemy. Go with me to verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. 
and all the armies of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. And God throws the army into utter confusion because when it says he routed the army, that's the next Hebrew word that's in your notes this morning, this particular word, Hamath, it's, it's talking about the same imagery that's used when Moses led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh's chariots were overwhelmed by the water coming on, it caused utter confusion. Hamam. They're in panic mode. God's crushing them in that moment. So the image is of Pharaoh's chariots being engulfed, and they got the exact same image here at this river. Now, you need to know that Judges contains two accounts of this particular story. This narrative that you're looking at this morning, and then Judges 5, is the poetic version of it. It's actually Deborah's song. And Deborah writes a song after the victory. And her song indicates a sudden downpour by God coming from the heavens and wiping out the enemy. Look with me on the screen at this from Judges 5, verse 20. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of the Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent of the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. See, it, it appears that this raging river, this torrent, it overflowed the banks to such a degree that the soil of the valley became mud. And all of a sudden, the chariots are stuck in the mud and they've got clogged wheels and they need to call tow trucks. They've got to get out of this situation. And I find God's humor in the midst of this because the God of the Canaanites is Baal, God, small g. Baal, or Baal as somebody pronounces it. The God that they worship, Baal, he's supposed to be the God of storms. This God, the God of nature, puts him in his place because the Lord God reigns over all of creation and he alone wields the control of the forces of nature. Sisera is a very experienced military leader. This is an individual who knows what it is to go to war and there's no way he would go to battle in the midst of the rainy season with 900 heavy chariots. The rainy season is March, April, May in Israel. He's not gonna go into that valley with heavy chariots during that season, so very likely this battle is taking place in June, July, or August. And God overwhelmed them with this raging torrent of water that came through, and all of a sudden we find they're stuck in the mud, and Israel acts on that. Whether or not that's exactly how it happened in any event, it's a decisive victory, and from this day forward, the Canaanites never again formed a battle against Israel. And then we get this detail. Even Sisera is forced to abandon his chariot, and he flees away to the north from the heat of the battle. Let me just read this to you with minimal commentary for me. Just let it speak for itself. Look at this, verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And now we understand why verse 11 came along. Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. <laughs> and if you know where this story's going, you're gonna say, no, you need to be afraid. <laughs> you really need to be afraid, Sisera, finish it out. And he turned aside into her tent and she covered him with a rug. 
Now, Sisera runs to the north. I think he's likely hoping to reach Hazor where King Jabin is living in his palace. I think he's going there because it's a fortified city and he wants the defensive walls to hide behind. But he's exhausted from the battle. And he's been running, and I think he's probably running with his armor. And then God causes the writer of Judges to put down this detail that he's so exhausted that he falls fast asleep. You'll see that in just a moment. It's the same word that's used to describe Jonah when he fell asleep in the bottom of the ship before they threw him overboard to be consumed by the great fish. It's the same word that's used of Adam when God put him into a deep sleep before removing a rib from his side. That's how exhausted he is. And it's a very tempting offer. So she says, turn aside, come in here. And his response back to her is, I'll let my guard down. In verse 19, he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink and then she covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be that if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here that you shall say no. So she treats him really kindly. He asks for water, she gives him milk. He asks for a place to hide, she covers him with choice furs, makes it appear as though he's one of the rugs on the floor. He's so exhausted, the offer is so tempting, he can't turn it down. Besides, he's thinking, who's going to search for me in the tent of a woman? Verse 21, but Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Yeah. <laughs> Why did they even need to put that part in there? Okay, verse 22, and behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. <laughs> okay, it creates all kinds of mental images, doesn't it? In this era, women did the work of putting up, constructing the tents. When nomadic tribes moved from region to region to feed the livestock, the men would go out and work in the pastures with the livestock. The women had the responsibility of putting the tent up. So JLs handled these tools a lot. So we've got a woman here whose arms are really in good shape. She's used to handling these tools. She knew how to handle them and she's got the muscle to back it up. And in her fervor to once and for all deal with this hopper in her life, this bully, she drives the peg clean through. Enough said. It's Mother's Day. I won't paint the image. So victory over an enemy in the ancient world is just the same as it is today. Victory is never considered complete until the leader of the enemy is destroyed. We saw that in recent years within, I think, the last decade when Osama bin Laden was killed. Although his forces had been decimated, the world took a collective sigh of relief when Osama bin Laden had been taken out. The same is true in this particular era. Until the leader is gone and eliminated, people can't relax. But how God did it is the most remarkable thing. 
So we find in verse 23, so God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. So the mightiest general in all of the region is defeated not by another general and not on his own battlefield, but by an ordinary housewife. In my notes, and to you, I would say, ordinary has to be in quotes. How many of us feel ordinary? I think all of us collectively would say, we feel ordinary. In the end, Deborah's prophecy came true. Although Barak led the army to victory, he didn't retain the honor. Sisera died at the hands of a woman. An ordinary individual acting in extraordinary ways. Ultimately, when you read chapter 5, and I would compel you to do that, when you read chapter 5, all the players involved in this, all the ones who helped put the song together of Deborah's song, they all recognize this is God's battle. We were just involved in it. This is God's battle that we're engaged in. So verse 23 ends with God subdued on that day. I think collectively we would all agree that we're probably not going to see our names in history books. Most of us would just say, I'm just average. I'm just ordinary. I don't do extraordinary things. However, throughout the Bible, we see that God often raises up the most unlikely, the most ordinary individuals. And Deborah's story is an excellent example of this. From a human perspective, you may feel like you don't seem all that great. Yet from God's perspective, ordinary is just fine with him. He brings about his will through the actions of ordinary people, making ordinary daily decisions, carrying out ordinary daily activities. And those little decisions along the way, day in and day out, they accumulate leading up to significant God moments. And suddenly you can find yourself in the place where God uses the ordinary to do extraordinary. What did Paul write in 1 Corinthians? Not many noble, not many wise, not many mighty. He was writing that about the church, that the church was put together out of ordinary people advancing the name of the king of kings on this planet. God doesn't need the strongest or the smartest or those who are the wealthiest in order to accomplish his purposes. He uses those who are willing to say, here I am, use me. I want to be put to use. I promise you, if you surrender to that way to God, God will use you. And it'll be in the most unique of ways that you probably didn't even anticipate. As we step out of the service this morning, I want to encourage women of the church that um, we, we just really, really value you. I can tell you from my position, as pastor over this church that was started with just 40 people 14 years ago, I've seen God do the most extraordinary things through the women of this church. If, if it was left to me alone or the guys here, we wouldn't be anywhere near we are. All praise to the Lord God that he created men and women, all right? Men say yes. <laughs> Thank you, God, for women. And women, I got to tell you, the way that God continues to work through you, the ways that God has built the ministry here, it's because you've been willing to say, I'm, I'm willing, I'll step in, I'll serve, I'll do that. 
I, I thank God for the tremendous ministry that women have had in this church. So the women's ministry team has gone out of their way to acknowledge what um, you have done and it, just as being a mom or just as being a lady, that's a challenge in today's society. So for the adult women of this church, there's a gift for you as you go out the door this morning. It's a, a little package that was put together by the women, women's ministry team. It reads Romans 12, 12, let your hope make uh, let hope make you glad, be patient in time of trouble, and never stop praying. And so there's gladiola bulbs inside this little packet. If you'd pick these up on the way out, you can plant those, and maybe you'll think of this day and the things that you learned about Deborah. Here's what I'd like to do for you and for myself and for every single individual in this auditorium or watching from home. I want to pray that God would bring us opportunities by which we would be willing to step up and say, I'm available, I'll do that. I'll serve God, and that maybe even this week, that serving God might be talking to someone about what Jesus did for you. Let's pray in that way that God would make us bolder to act on His behalf. Would you join me in that? Father, I thank You for the story that You caused to be written down in Judges chapter 4. I thank You for the lessons that we've learned this morning and the way that You've pressed on the heart of each of us here. Especially thank you, God, for warrior women, women who are, are willing to take on very difficult situations and say, yes, I will. I will do that. Father, I pray that you send us out now with your blessing, but also with a challenge on our hearts that we would be bolder in our actions and our activities on your behalf. You are the King of Kings. We're surrendered to you. And we would ask that you bring opportunities our way by which we would serve you faithfully. Thank you, God, for this time. Send us out now with your blessing. We pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great day.